Hello everyone, welcome. This is Molly Rowan Leach of the ongoing free telecouncil series, Restorative Justice on the Rise, co-produced by the Peace Alliance. This archive features Chris Miner, the executive director of the St. Croix Valley Restorative Justice Project. We had an extraordinary conversation with Chris and this council offered some great insights into some of the primary questions people are asking in their communities about how to implement restorative justice. This archive was from Thursday, November 8, 2012. For more information about this series and for upcoming guests, go to dopeace.us and click on Restorative Justice. Thank you and enjoy this archive. Good evening, everybody. Welcome. This is Molly Rowan Leach. And I am your host for Restorative Justice on the Rise. This is an ongoing free telecouncil series co-produced by the National Peace Alliance. It's a great honor to have you all here tonight with us and um, to welcome you if it's your first time here. Again, this is an ongoing free telecouncil series and its purpose is to provide a platform and a council-style discussion featuring guest speakers in varying aspects of the field of restorative justice, uh, transfor transformative justice, uh, and restorative practices and beyond. As many of us know, there's quite a, a moment happening here in our country and beyond in the world around the justice conversation, and we hope that this series provides all who participate a sense of having a virtual council at hand that provides tools and education and connections. So tonight I just want to warmly encourage you to participate if you're so moved by pressing one on your keypad. That's one on your telephone keypad. At about the half an hour, given that this is an hour-long council tonight, which goes by very fast, um, at the half an hour I will open up the lines for questions and comments and then Tonight, I think what we'll do is we'll honor uh, the council style even more in asking people to feel free to ask questions or comments throughout that last half an hour. I'll go ahead and try and call on as many people as I can. We have a, a great group here with us tonight. So again, also for those of you who aren't familiar, we post these archives from this series um, at dopeace.us. That's D-O-P-E-A-C-E dot U-S and um, archives from last season as well. So please access those and hopefully find some great material and information there as well. So tonight I am extraordinarily honored and excited that we have with us Chris Miner of the St. Croix Valley Restorative Justice. Uh, she is the executive director, and what's really great about Chris and the programs that she and the staff have created up there in Wisconsin is that it really ties in with, with uh, what seems to be a real hunger right now for understanding working models in restorative justice and practices and how we can really get things moving in our communities. <clears throat> so I'd just like to share a few words about um, Chris's background and um, like I said she's the executive director of the St. Croix Valley 
restorative justice, and her professional work experience includes in-home family therapist, a social worker, juvenile justice, and child protection supervisor. SCVRJP, which you can find more out about this programming at scvrjp.org, provides a range of restorative justice services, including victim-offender conferencing, victim impact panels, underage consumption panels, controlled substance intervention circles, teen driving circles, victim empathy seminars, and restorative response programming. Restorative response addresses sudden and traumatic death by providing support groups, circles, trainings, and a guide for grieving families. SCVRJP provides trainings and workshops on restorative justice topics. It has received local, state, and national awards. So I've, I just really am so delighted to, to have you with us tonight, Chris, and just wondered if you might start out tonight as we often do with sharing what brought you into this work and, and what, what impassions you about it. What are you seeing and what have you seen in the past that, that really um, was the fuel for bringing you to manifest such a, an empowering program and, and a really truly viable one now up there in, in Wisconsin. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I really, really appreciate you calling on me to share this story and, and appreciate that introduction and sometimes feel kind of overwhelmed and even think, was that really me? <laughs> Is that our program? <laughs> but, so that's, that's wonderful, wonderful. Um, before we went on, you mentioned um, to speak as if we had kindred souls here um, and to share the part of the journey um, that brought me to restorative justice. And one of the things that, for me, that really tapped and connected was I, I'm a child that was adopted as an infant, and I had a strong void where belonging could be because I just didn't feel that from that part of my story of being adopted. And then in 1998, um, as a social worker in Rochester, Minnesota, uh, we were provided opportunity, and I, I think we were very encouraged, you know, to go to this training, and, and I wanted to play the role of the offender to kind of disrupt the process. Um, so, and that was my first real justice training where we learned about family group conferencing because the state of Minnesota was um, kind of on the forefront and early adopter of restorative practices. Um, so that was kind of my introduction, and I continued to see that it worked. Um, young people that when you invested in who they were on the inside, um, you helped them tell their story, uh, maybe be more than the past or the behavior that got them in the justice system. Um, you could see healing and relationships and, and things really took hold. And then in a circle training in 2002 with Kay Pranis, that was just like um, – the spontaneous combustion <laughs> just lit it all on fire that um, this is what I needed to do and without doing it, it just, it, it just had to be. And then I was really fortunate that a group of people around, you know, our board of directors, our volunteers, um, coworkers, that we were able just to continue to establish the program. And, and, and some, of the, some of the growth came from people didn't know what to do uh, so they went ahead and gave us a try, and, and then we have people like a local municipal court judge who will say, I don't know what you're doing, but it sure is working. Um, and we'll say that we used to have people that had a season pass or frequent flyers to the court, and since your program, we don't have that anymore. 
So there's a lot that mm-hmm. goes lot that goes into that and to continually see it work is what continues to reaffirm it. It's that circle rolling down the road, I guess. Wonderful. And um, it's it's always so powerful to hear the stories that inform what we give back to the world. And it just seems like there's such a direct connection between uh, feeling a sense of, of acceptance and belonging in the world and also um, feeling a sense of safety to share uh, our stories together. And I really appreciate the power of restorative justice and practices to provide that that for us. Um, and I just wondered um, if, if, if you could also touch on a bit of your own understanding of what restorative justice is and, and um, even define it if you would like. Sure. You know, I'll do my best, and this is, these are all things that I've learned from, from other people. Um, I like to describe it as a different lens. It's, um, a different, it's a philosophy itself, restorative justice. So we're going to view crime and conflict as harm, um, harm to individuals and harm to communities, and see what it is that people's needs are around that um, to define the harm in a way that maybe we could repair it collectively involving both the victim, the offender, and the community. And then I, I'm careful when I describe it to different places because if you're talking to a school, it's a little bit different between the student and the teacher or the person who authored the harmful act. Or, um, but sometimes you do have to use a little bit of those labels to kind of explain. It's getting people with um, different perspectives, the diversity of perspectives um, together and to talk about it and to try and make things right. And I believe that it's in serving. Um, it's not about helping or fixing, but it's serving humanity when we do restorative justice. Mm. Wow. So I know that I really went in depth a bit about uh, what you're up to with the St. Croix Valley Restorative Justice Program, but I'd love to kind of start out tonight by really talking about how, how it got started because um, one of the things that, that I feel like people are really asking for is how to create something in their own communities right now and how that works, like the actual integrative aspect with the existing system being a part of that conversation. And people really hungry to hear experiences and certainly um, really gaining a lot of insight around how important it is to approach this with humility and with openness as well um, so that we're not going in and trying to lecture or convince or proselytize restorative justice, but like you were saying, allowing uh, the proof to be in the pudding um, that like as uh, Officer Greg Ruprecht in the Longmont uh, Police Department here in Colorado said, he, he began to, after doubting restorative justice at first, he began to see the proof in the pudding because he stopped seeing the um, recycling of the Mm -hmm. same people coming back into the system. So one of the other pieces is is that data that we're growing right now. And we also, of course, see it over in places like New Zealand in the juvenile system and, and other places that have implemented this and have moved on it. So if you could, how about let's just start with, um, maybe one of the most uh, poignant programs that you offer. I, you have a full calendar each month, I, I noticed, 
of yeah. programming that you offer. So pick pick one that you'd like to share with us tonight and how 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 you see that rolling and and how other people might be able to um to bring that into to their communities. Sure, sure. I kind of want to back back up like the early days when we sort of we started with different entities in our community that didn't always, you know, they sat across from the aisle from each other, so to speak. We had, you know, law enforcement and school and our public defender and our victim services and our prosecutor. We had a lot of different people coming to the table to to be interested and see what we could do with restorative justice, but they weren't always the folks that were used to working together. And so it was, really, it was really interesting to bring that group together, and they continue to be invested, and they continue to work together. So I think some of what happened in our own community was the key stakeholders took the time, and we actually used the process itself. Kay Pranis, you know, we're really lucky. We're close here. She came over and did a talking circle with us in, I think it was 03, and we developed our mission statement using the circle process, and we haven't tweaked or changed it since then. So to me, it's about the parallel of the process. So that's one of the things that I think builds up is that you have to be using the, use the technique and so that people really know what you're talking about. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to mention is when we started early on, we had this idea that we wanted to embed the philosophy of restorative justice. And um, in our mix of folks early on at the table, we had a school board member who really felt that we were pushing kids away in school at a time that we should be pulling them in a little closer and that restorative justice could be used for suspensions and expulsion. And, but this theme about embedding the philosophy. So we kind of kept that in mind, but then we also had to move towards grant applications that said we'd serve this many people with this outcome. And so kind of fast forward today, I feel like our Embed the Philosophy happens that our local campus has a circle keeper position. It's a student leadership position, and they're doing circles as part of student development and organizational culture and structure within our local campus. Mm. So I think that's kind of cool how it, we didn't own it. Um, mm -hmm. We shared it. We were collaborating. We were teaching, you know, radiating what works, the school saw it, and it's, it's, it's great that sometimes starting up a new program you think, well, if we're not getting referrals, it must be because somebody else is, and, um, and that, that like playing nice doesn't always happen. But do what you do and do it well, and then things mm -hmm. will continue to develop. And our, like when we started the underage consumption panels, I called it a panel because I didn't feel like our community was, you know, circle was kind of foreign. Now it gets used all the time. Fast forward from, you know, 06. Um, and same thing, victim empathy seminars. But then you can see that they changed. It's the CSI circle, which is Controlled Substance Intervention Circle, uh, Teen Driving Circle. And then you, you did ask about one that I was really, really wanted to talk about, what we built up over time because we use storytelling. We're really, really core to the circle process here at St. Croix Valley Restorative Justice, and that involves storytellers. And those are people that have lost someone, tragically, been part of a crash that caused the death of another person. And so you ask people to volunteer for your program, and you have to build a strong enough relationship because it's like, oh, hey, we have a, we have a panel next Wednesday. Can you come tell your story? Um, that's really building a connection with victims and mm -hmm. supporting them and giving them, really respecting that story. So 
what happened was we moved into restorative response, which is for unnatural deaths. There were a number of suicides in our community, and we set up circles. That's what we do well, and, and, and our community knew those. And what was really neat was that some of our volunteers in our program had experienced, um, been impacted. One had, was a coworker had asked him to buy a handgun, and then the coworker used that to take his life. And another was a volunteer that when he was, you know, 18, his brother had taken his life. Um, and so people were impacted that knew the process, and we started to develop the restorative response. And then one thing I always like to do is use public health model. So we looked a little mm -hmm. bit further upstream for, for suicide and found out that law enforcement are really at risk. And now we have this guide for grieving families, which um, I guess on the front door approach, it's, it's a great thing to be a tool to be in the hands of families within 48 hours of a traumatic death. But it also gives our law enforcement and first responders something to hand someone at that time so they don't feel so helpless. And it's really a place where the information about who did the death notification, where the vehicle is, what are the primary contact numbers needed, and it's full of tips and information and places you need to contact. And there's um, so much that happens under after a sudden traumatic loss that the booklet can be used, you know, from a few days to a few years after. Wow, it's it's really powerful how many programs you've you've set up, and I'm curious to know your thoughts. Um, it, it seems that a, con a consistent presence in a community over the arc of time that can be um, expected helps in in a natural education of, of what its provisions are. Like you're saying, people are naturally starting to see what's happening and, and a sense of word of mouth, perhaps, um, as well as, as just an understanding that you know, you pl you've placed a stake in the ground here, and people are welcome to show up if if they feel feel so moved. Is it yeah, really? it's it's been a lot of. Um, I love networking, <laughs> and and being out there. And one of the one of the kind of tips, or I'd give to someone if they want to talk about getting started, is get people to be in circle with you to see what it's like. So mm -hmm. we've had the mayor, we've had our bookkeeper's daughter, we've had a board member's mother. <laughs> I mean, we've been out and about, um, and even when I get like invited to our local chapter of AAUW, we do that in a talking circle or a mm -hmm. confirmation class. It's in talking circle. And so um, that's afforded us a lot of opportunities to go in a lot of different places that people get to feel comfortable about it. Uh, I, can, I love stuff and the program's like a child of mine. Um, so of course talking about it I get energetic and, and I apologize for being boastful but you know I'm really proud of it. And, um, <laughs> so that going around like that helps. That becomes that contagious kind of piece I guess. And then people go out and they talk about that experience because it is pretty novel that you're going to get a group of strangers really in a room and then at the end of two hours they're, they've shared you know, their values and mistakes they've made and what they could do to make it right. And, and it's, it's really, really neat. Um, and, and we, you know, this whole getting started, we really have our community present. It's not just our community is the people who volunteer to facilitate, but our community, there's three or four community members at each circle. Um, there's community members that are helping keep the circle. And then 
I, I tell people it's like a job. We'll train you how to do this. And, and we have ongoing development of our volunteers. And so we have some people that are retired. Um, we have people that just came through our programming and found it helpful, and they volunteer. So literally we mm -hmm. have 16 to 60 helping out. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, Chris, I know that many of us tonight in this council are well-seasoned, and maybe some of us aren't so well-seasoned. Um, and are just approaching this with curiosity because we have a, a, a large group of participants tonight that may be new to, to the council. And I'm just wondering if you, if you would spend just a moment just sharing what it means to, to convene a talking circle. Um, and certainly, you know, if you want to throw in a little bit of what, what you've learned from Kay Pranis in that way, um, what are the principles of a talking circle and can anybody convene one? Do you, do you have to have training? Um, I would say training is important, and I think it's um, a quote. I can't remember who, but a man must experience a revolution before he can lead one <laughs> um, because it's so powerful. And to me, there's, um, there's some specifics to a peacemaking, restorative justice circle. Um, those are relying on the values, um, using a talking piece, decision-making by consensus, uh, the ceremony part is just as simple as an open and close, a poem or reading at the beginning or the end. And then the person's role as a keeper, uh, you're not the, the facilitator, um, you're more of a guide, or sometimes I even use the word a Sherpa because you're on the journey itself. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I think that's, oh, there was one more. But the, oh, the four stages I really focus on that we do, getting acquainted, building relationships, addressing issues, and taking action. And it's kind of a spiral experience as we go in. You know, we all look at all the perspectives. I know the one I forgot was storytelling. So those to me are the aspects of doing a restorative justice circle. Um, we do train community members. We offer trainings here four times a year. Um, we've had people from New York to California visit River Falls and come to those mm -hmm. trainings and then take them back and, and use them. Um, but, yeah, we have a pretty... Um, it, it's not just sitting the chairs in a shape, and it's not just using a talking piece. Mm -hmm. So those are, I don't know if you want me to go on anymore. Oh, that's wonderful. And, and I know that um, in some communities too, uh, and probably in your case as well, <laughs> we know that... Um, we can once we get to know that there's something in place that we can can come to like this um there there it do, it doesn't have to wait for there to be an incident uh we can certainly practice with our own um day to day conflict right our our own day to day stuff do you do yes. you practice in that way as well yes yes i believe that there's um um ten ways of living restoratively that Howard Zare put out. And then there's also a model, um, I think it's Belinda Hopkins, but zero is when you don't know anything about it. A minus one is when you're opposed to it. One, you're interested. Two, you would refer to it. Three, you would facilitate it. But four, you are being it. And, mm. and I've learned like for myself, like when I do have that conflict or something, I'm trying to like right the wrong instead of defend my point of view. I mean, I'm not perfect at it. Um, but another way of like being restorative is you judge others by their behavior and you judge yourself by your intentions. And, I, and it's just 
it's just starting to be aware of things. And like people that would come late to a meeting, I'd be kind of annoyed. But if I was late to a meeting, I'd be like, well, because I had something really important to do because I was judging myself by my intention and them by their behavior. So we have to remember all those things and just sit with them, be aware of where we are even, and constantly try to be restorative in mm. that. And I think that's what helps when you work with you know, going to other agencies, like you mentioned, you don't go there and say, we're going to fix your problem or do what's wrong or we're going to help you with this, but it's how can we together serve humanity. Um, and you can't always say that to different groups. You have to kind of be a little bit aware. But um, So it sounds to me like you have a real uh, way with building relationships within that community and beyond. And um, it's just very interesting to hear how you've had everybody from the mayor to, um, it sounds like, some of the people like the DA and um, perhaps the victim's advocates. How, how is it that you've worked with them to um, introduce them to, to this system? Usually it's like, it's like asking them to come. And, mm -hmm. you know, and I've gotten better over time. I suppose I, I mean, I'm a softer version of myself than I used to be, and there's probably <laughs> people listening that are chuckling. Um, <laughs> there's stories I could tell, but <laughs> I think it is, it is because restorative justice is about relationships, and it's, it's that relationship. So it's, not, it's building relationships with them or asking why they would or wouldn't do something um, or how it might could work or couldn't work. And, and it's a constant revisiting of those and realizing that people are in a different place. Like they might think they're being restorative and they haven't once had a referral come here. Um, or they think it's somebody else's step in the process to maybe make the referral. So, and then because I have so, such a continuum here that we work on with, um, from our college campus uh, to our schools to, you know, an invitation to speak at a Rotary Club, we're always so busy, so sometimes it's kind of just a juggling act on where we go and, and what we can do. But it is constantly nurturing those relationships. And, um, you know, I've had, I've had people that have, you know, why don't we just do this the same? And it's like we report to each court based on what that court would, what works for them. Um, so mm -hmm. it's, it's really relationships. And a relationship is the first thing is to care. Uh, to care and connect and then commit to it. So those three C's are, and commit to the people that come through our doors every day, whether they're a volunteer, um, they're here to pay their session fee, they're here to do service learning from campus, and um, it's, it's just engaging everybody's part of the family and remembering that interconnectedness uh, for every person that comes through the door. Mm, beautiful. Well, I'd just like to pause just for a moment in this powerful conversation we're having and certainly open it up out to all of us here tonight together that it's about time to um, get your questions and comments lined up. If you have something you would like to ask Chris tonight or, or make a comment, please press 1 on your keypad um, from here on out tonight. We also have a, quite a number of web questions that have been submitted tonight. I'd like to also welcome you if it's your first time to Restorative Justice on the Rise. And again, this is a co-production of the Peace Alliance, and it's an honor to play host to this series, which is free and ongoing. And the archives are posted at dopeace.us. 
I'd strongly encourage all of us to, if you haven't already, get familiar with Chris's work um, and the St. Croix Valley Restorative Justice Projects at scvjrp.org. That's scvjrp.org. And so, it's I think so. St. Croix Valley Restorative Justice Program, SCVRJP. It's it's quite a tongue twister. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I never thought of that when we got started. Like, oh yeah, let's just use our the acronym for our name, and we then there we were. So SCVRJP for St. Croix Valley Restorative Justice Program. Wonderful. Well, I'd I'd like to go ahead and turn to uh, a web question to start out tonight. Um, from the council, uh, Jennifer asks, and this is a, a really powerful question and it, it, it's a bit long, but I want to include the whole thing. She says, our mediation program offers victim offender mediations for cases involving juvenile first-time offenders. We are trying to increase referrals from diversion programs, probation, and law enforcement agencies. However, we have found resistance to the idea of giving the victim a say in the outcome. The agencies often wish to impose their requirements for community service, legal uh, awareness classes, etc., and they are only willing to leave the restitution amount on the table for negotiation. She asks, how can we convince these agencies to leave all areas open for negotiation, thereby giving the victim and offender self-determination as to how they wish to repair the harm? Okay. And thank you, Jennifer, for that question. I think that is a um, it, not the first time I've heard something like that, and not uh, not a challenge that will that's easily overcome. So I just I just want to say that um, the way that I did it was um, invited the prosecutor, the person who had the the um, ability to make those decisions, to a circle. We're lucky here; we straddle two counties. So I can have county officials in one come over to another county and be put on their baseball hat after work and, <laughs> and come to the session as a community member. And so, um, you know, a quick story about that was um, it was supposed to be a haunted house. It was an abandoned house. The kids went in. They found fireworks. They started the fireworks. The whole place burned down. And the person, this was a summer cabin, and she was retired. It had been in her family since she was a little girl. And a concern that she had while we were getting ready for the victim offender dialogue preparer was that she didn't want to have bits of restitution coming and having to check her mailbox while she was in the in, you know, snowbird for the winter. And, and what happened was two of the families brought checks right to the session because as I went back and forth with what the concerns might be and what the topics might be. And so the prosecutor from another county was in this session. He saw the power of the dialogue, um, mm. you know, to see a father weep when he heard the victim relating what this cabin meant to this family member. He saw the victim get immediate needs in two restitution checks, like right there on the spot. And so that's what transformed it. It's not easy to get these folks to the table all the time, and that's where it's giving them a voice. Um, you know, having your law enforcement officer, you, you kind of have to coach and train and talk about how we're going to talk about the perspective, your experience in this, rather than, you know, what the person did wrong. Um, and that's a lot of those relationship building pieces. So, um, and, and I don't know, maybe 
to me, the victim offender mediation is a little bit of an older term, that it's community conferencing or um, victim offender dialogue. So to me, mediation means that there is that one piece to negotiate rather than the whole group coming up with the um, what what what's needed to make it right? So mm -hmm. I don't I don't know how that works. That they got to a place about you know I heard the phrase uh, restitution is the only thing they're willing to leave on the table. Um, it, it sounds like maybe taking a step back and um, but mm -hmm. again it's hard. I only have a little bit of a piece and I know our experience here. So for me it's getting the people in the circle to see the experience and then once you have those victims that have participated. Um, honor their voice and ask them to share that in a way that they're comfortable. And then that's what's really um, amazing too. Is what, I mean, that's where the power is when a, when a victim helps an offender turn their life around. I mean, victims have tremendous power in our community when they share that story. Just absolutely mm -hmm. tremendous. And it's not always honored, and it's a way to honor that. Um, but it's hard too because the, sometimes the, the biggest one is you don't want to re-traumatize the victim. You have to do it in a way that you aren't framing it for people that it's the victim's obligation to rehabilitate the offender because it's not. Um, but it really is giving them a voice, uh, serving their needs, and a lot of times that just starts by having to identify what are their needs. And um, there's lots of studies and surveys that show that the victims are more satisfied with restorative justice. And, you know, anywhere from 40 to 60% of the time victims choose it, so some don't choose it. Can, can you refer um, any of those studies to, like specifically, where, where can people find more that they might want to bring um, in their work to show to people working within the existing system, helpful um, well, and, and augmenting? Sure. There's a big one called RJ the Evidence that's like the study of all the studies. Um, the restorativejustice.org has lots of different studies listed. Um, I have a blog, circle-space. I haven't, I used to really blog a lot more frequently, but I do have a little research section that links out to different articles. Um, but I would think any Google Scholar search should help you out. I know the Hudson Institute had some things out that showed those numbers. And then there's um, the work over, I mean, it probably is inclusive of uh, the work that has occurred over time in New Zealand in the juvenile system there, which is a, a wonderful reference and proof of the power of utilizing um, community conferencing as an alternative. Because that, that's actually the primary aspect of their system now, is it not? Yes. Yep. As I understand it, um, that it that it's part of, that's right in the system that it goes there first. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And as far as, you know, if Jennifer has any more specific questions or further ideas, you know, feel free to contact me and, uh, you know, I can do what I can do to try and help. And a lot of times finding, finding your champion, finding your advocates within that that might help you so it's not just one sole voice about this, um, you know, and maybe starting at one, one place at a time for referrals. Um, mm -hmm. But that, that's a struggle when you know you read the police report in the paper or you, know, you see all these things and you know that they could come to your program just from reading them and then they don't. It gets, um, it, it's, gets difficult, but the perseverance pays off over time to just consistently do a, bit, a good program and consistently you know, 
serve people and serve those relationships. It'll it, it can shift. Hmm. So I just would like to um, again let everybody know that if you press one on your telephone keypad, you are more than welcome to ask a live question or make a comment tonight. And I'd just like to um, go to Harvey here from the web, and he asks, uh, is it feasible to try to in- incorporate restorative justice principles and practices in high crime inner city areas? And if so, who would be involved and how could it be implemented? So I often kind of tease when I do trainings that be careful if you ask me a question because my answer will always be a circle. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It it just is. It's like always there. So the high crime inner city, that's not not where I'm at. But there was just something because I have a Google alert for either restorative justice or circles, but they were talking about the gang violence. Um, They were holding circles in Chicago. And then Janine Geske, Marquette here, in Wisconsin, they were addressing some. They were addressing gang violence, and she has a wonderful, wonderful story about a law enforcement officer in circle and talking about holding the child that that died from a stray bullet from from gang violence and how that had an impact on him. And that story bridged the gap to realize how much it's impacting our community when people in the community who are, you know, usually, you know unkind words to the cops or police, that those tensions are there, were able to find a common ground how they both were so significantly harmed by something like that. So I think it's possible, and, and yes, every question, my answer is usually a circle. So <laughs> Wonderful. I, I also, uh, I think you might be referring to the powerful work that's related to uh, the Interrupters film. Um, which is uh, uh, the inner city Chicago work that's happening um, with uh, interrupting the cycle of violence. And if you haven't seen that film, it's a very powerful documentary, and it tracks the lives of two or three, maybe more, of the interrupters who actually go out on the streets. They're former gang members. They go out into the streets, and they work with some of the um, the continued to, to be existing gang members who, um, in one example, uh, is probably going to commit a murder in a retributive fashion, and um, they prevent that from happening. And not only that, they help this guy to um, get himself cleaned up and, um, you know, realizing that uh, uh, there's, a, there's a other choices. So it, it's a very powerful documentary. In fact, it, it just came out last year, and I bet many of us on this call know about it. But if you don't, uh, check out the interrupters. That's great. So, the high uh, crime, the severe crime work, I, I feel very fortunate that I've been in circle with kindergartners where we've held a little fuzzy bunny, and the question was, how do you feel when someone takes your turn? And, and someone shared, it makes me feel invisible. And the classroom circle got to create, okay, we don't want anyone to be, feel invisible all the way up to being in circle with people in prison who would not be leaving that prison, that they were there to serve life sentences and due to, uh, you know, illness, and they, they would not be leaving. So I've been in circle all along that continuum. And some of the most evolved people have been um, men living in a situation that they are not leaving prison. 
um, and the remorse that they have and the strive, the goals that they have to try and live um, as regular everyday life, get up, go to work, do my job, see my family when I can, kinds of life. Um, and I know that restorative justice worked in that kindergarten classroom, and I know that restorative justice worked in that prison setting. So. And, and to take it further, um, looking out to what's coming ahead in the future, how, uh, we, we know that in, obviously in the current prison um, system, even the telecommunications industry makes it very difficult and expensive for there to be a connection between inmates and their loved ones and you know, any kind of network they may have on the outside. And I'm wondering if you've seen any indicators uh, or perhaps are involved in, it sounds like in some already, on the inside that are helping, um, you know, from, from, from that end when a, when a crime has already happened and when somebody, somebody's life has um, been committed to a long-term prison sentence, how can restorative justice still reach them and, and what do you see in possible hopes for the future for, for this part of it, for, for the offender, so to speak, or the author, um, the term that uh, Dominic Barter, I believe, coined in mm-hmm. his restorative circles? Um, I just have a story about I know how difficult we had. Uh, we're trying to set up a phone call um, with, a, with an inmate that wanted to be doing restorative justice. And, and I, I, I have a master's degree. My coworker had a bachelor's degree. And we didn't have a credit card as an agency. And, I mean, the frustration that we went through as a professional, you know, as a nonprofit trying to set up a way to have a phone call, we were really became very, very aware of what it must be like if you are a family member um, because that was almost impossible for us to do. So I do know that. I mean, those questions about that, that's very, very real about how difficult it is um, and the expense of, of communicating by phone. That was our experience as a nonprofit. Um, I think the work for people then in prison is, you know, when, um, when people are unhappy, and frustrated, and they feel as if they've been wronged, that's when they'll behave harmfully to each other. And that's why we repair, you know, work to resolve what is the harm and and how do we repair it. So um, if people aren't feeling like they're harmed or wronged, uh, that they, there are people that understand, I'm in prison for a reason, and I did this, and I'm accountable to doing this, um, but that they don't have to feel harmed or wronged on a day-to-day basis or the relationships between the staff and the inmates, you know, are not so uncomfortable that there's constant retaliation and violence, then I think that keeps people much safer um, that are going into work in the prisons, um, people that are, are living in those contained environments. So, um and that's not as much my area. I appreciate the honor it is to do that work, and yet I can remember being doing a dialogue over a murder and really feeling like I heard the same thing from that offender as I hear from other offenders that, you know, I just kind of went along. I didn't think it was really going to happen. You know, the person didn't stand up to their positive values. Um, and it's like, wow, this is the same sorts of, you know, wrong place at the wrong time, and I, I don't mean that in a dismissive way, but, but some of it is really, unless you know how to embrace your values, your, your positive values, 
um, you can end up in situations that are very, very harmful to other people. So for me, when I do the prison work, I realize, wow, how important my community work is so to keep that continuum from flowing that that there's more people in prison. Mm. Well, we certainly know, too, um, although we don't focus on... Um overly on the problems and the issues here in the sense of dragging out um, and, you know, having a complaining atmosphere about them. But we do know that uh, we need to know what the facts are, of course, around um, what we're facing with the current prison industrial complex. And a couple weeks ago, I had the honor of hosting Fleet Mall from the Prison Mindfulness Institute. And it was a very informative council where we, we did talk a little bit about the current situation and predicament, of course, being a retributive and punitive paradigm. And um, not only that one that appears to be quite motivated by profit, if not almost fully motivated by that. And so really, it, 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 you know, the, the telecommunications industry and, and all the little private industries that are a part of this, as well as um, corporations like the Correctional Corporations of America and the GEO Group and some of the lobbying that happens in order to um, kind of uh, reciprocate the cycle actually of crime in order for there to be a, a profit turned seems to be at hand. And yet at this very moment too, people are building these relationships like you are, Chris, in your community with, with all the people that are involved with you. And it, it feels to me that, that the possibility of as we continue and stay committed to this really empowering and benevolent work, um, it will ripple into uh, even more deeply into the, the prison system itself. And if there's anybody out there tonight um, on, on our, our council here that is doing some work very specifically with prisoners, in restorative justice and practices or, or people who are working within the system, um, feel free to, you know, to comment tonight about any of, of the aspects of your work and what you're discovering. Um, again, that's the, press one on your keypad and you can certainly um, ask other questions and make comments. We have about 15 minutes left in, in our council tonight. Um, so Chris, I, uh, on that note, I'd like to talk just a little bit um, in a moment about the resistance that there may be still um, to moving away from punitive and retributive practices. But for, uh, I'm going to go ahead and open up the line here for a live question or comment. Um, let's see here. Avi, I think that's, uh, let's see. Yes, I, um, first of all, I want to thank Chris for her contribution and sharing and us being in a community of practice. So uh, here in Chicago, we're, we're part of the, um, you know, the Ibarge and Stone Soup Project. Um, I'm working with uh, Future Foundation Youth Services, a nonprofit uh, specifically uh, focused in um, uh, restorative justice conferencing. Uh, I'm dealing principally with the schools, police departments, and also with the, the Markham 6th District Court also in conjunction with um, Ethical Solutions Consortium. And my question is, uh, you, you, you talked about some of the pushback and uh, resistance that you have met and how you were able to overcome those things. Um, 
notably in the police departments, it seems to be a fraternity. Uh, while we had some police commanders and and um, give us the on surface uh, green light and brought us in, introduced us to the staff. But when it came time to do the conferences, sometime when the parents were sure with the children, uh, the youth made ask for me. Uh, I'd be in the room waiting in the conference room, and whoever's on duty would turn them around and say, "We don't have that guy here." And um, then in the, some of the school systems, the superintendent or principal would tell us that we really don't have a problem here uh, with behavior. And um, it just, you know, it, it, sometimes it was disheartening. Uh, we broke through on some levels, and we're still challenged. And I heard you say, uh, I don't want to give you the uh, idea that you, you snow, you're not going to have some pushback at some point. Uh, but I'd like to, to sh for you to share with us uh, what were your, um, your, 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 your way markers, your milestones in terms of being able to break through to uh, transform. I heard you say inviting people into the circle because we're doing peace circles as well. So kind of give us some insight in those institutions because that first question about institutions still wanted to do the other way. So that's, that's my question. Give us maybe a little um, story on how you did it, how you're doing it, how we might do it. Well, I'm afraid we're out of time now, Avi. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that's not the story at all. <laughs> I'm sorry. That, that's just such a big question. I had to go with some humor there. But, I mean, that's huge. That, that is huge. I would say that a, a milestone that I started to um, kind of roll with, I guess, um, was the fact that we were using, I, I really saw if you went to the school, you said we're here to help with the problem, that there was no problem. Um, and that I think that they want to be an institution that solves their own problem. Um, but what I did was I found some inroads with a specific teacher and our teen driving circle program, which was really about a public health issue that we knew the number one cause of death for people 16 and 24 is car crashes. Um, and then you come in the door of the school and you've got a victim in tow that's going to tell their story. And she's touched to be there because her child had passed at that age, and it feels good to be around kids. And they see, like, like you, you cannot like me maybe or, you know, think I'm touchy-feely, but when you sit in a circle and you hear a mom tell her story and you're pulling out the Kleenex for yourself and your students, you know, that, that to me is a little bit of a change. And then um, we've had some, some different um, people that, you know, what I found out when I worked with the police officers were they would come to the circle and I was really I was really inspired by how they could share it, how they could relate, but then I knew that there were things that were being talked about and I finally realized if I am being criticized for doing touchy-feely work, then I am doing it right. <laughs> and okay. it started to be okay. like, yeah, yeah, that that's that means we're doing the right thing and and I remember having someone in and we were talking about things and I realized that the, the skills and techniques to be a good law enforcement officer, the way that you need to do that, are completely different than the skills and techniques that I'm going to ask of you in circle. And okay. so it's not going to fit for everybody and, and you're going to need to be safe um, in, in how, you, how you do things. Um, but it's really amazing when you kind of get that turnaround a little bit. Um, I've been honored to have, you know, help an officer whose child was being bullied at school, and he didn't ever tell anybody else, and hopefully people aren't listening, but it was a few years back. But, you know, when they call on you 
to help with their own families, that's a milestone. And if you can do it in a way that helps protect, kind of let them save face, so to speak, um, that, that to me I felt like was just that relationship with them and then that ripple effect as it, as it grows out. And the other thing that I would do is when students in the teen driving circle, they would write on the evaluation form, you know, what was the best part, hearing from the officer, um, meeting a police officer, you know, getting to hear the cop's perspective. You know, I copied those and took those back and really thanked them for being part of it and being involved. And, and sometimes you have to sit down and have thick skin, too, and go, hey, what do you think? Well, I think you let them off, and they should have had three-day suspension. But we, it takes a lot of courage to let a school say, okay, the circle's going to decide, and the kids in the circle decide, you know, you're not out of school for three days. You know, we've kind of worked this out. So it's praising people for being um, standing up to it. Okay. And the power of story, story after story. You know, there's a story about the teacher that wanted to give up on the restorative justice model. She didn't want this kid to have to go to the field trip. And it was like, nope, we're doing it this way. Everybody goes on the field trip. At the field trip, the little guy won a stuffed bear and on the way home gave it to the teacher and said, I know I've been tough on you this year, but thanks for helping me. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So collect those, share those stories, and 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 tell the stories about other people. Um, you know how what how the officer helped change this kid, or how powerful that moment was. And and some of them are kind of fun. We had an officer tell a kid in circle that, well, if it would have been me there that night, you would have been tased. And <laughs> well, <laughs> well, uh, so hey, and if all else fails, just you know, tell a joke or say you're out of time. Or, no. <laughs> I got you. I picked that one up. Let me use that one. All right. All right. Hope that helps. And good Thank luck. You. It sounds like you have a lot of inroads to celebrate a lot of places where you're doing your work too. So kudos for that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. And uh, thank you again. You're welcome. Oh, thank you, Avi. Great work and, and wonderful questions. I um. It just it, it, it makes me think that uh, one of the things too that that we can remember we've got in our back pocket are all these stories and tools again that we've been mentioning tonight of um, like the video anybody can Google and find the video on YouTube of Officer Greg Ruprecht for example um, Chris you've probably seen it and he's with the Longmont uh, Police Department. I'm probably going to make him famous, <laughs> but, but he needs to be famous because he's a, a really incredible and powerful example of a police officer willing to go on camera with his experience with restorative justice and not only that, um, speak to his high doubt of it. So he, he talks about it being, you know, at first he, he felt that it was, um, you know, just this warm, fuzzy kumbaya, but then he realized again after time and after actually implementing it within the Longmont PD and uh, the systems there, um, they also have a great program called Longmont Community Justice Partnership. And, and in fact, in the coming weeks, we'll be featuring uh, the executive director of that organization. But So I, I would highly recommend Googling um, for the YouTube video of Officer Greg Ruprecht. And uh, maybe one of these days we'll have him here with us on this council. And uh, just remembering that, like Chris, you're saying, these, these stories are so powerful and important, and um, there's lots of places to find examples. Uh, Azim Kamisa and his work with uh, the Tariq Kamisa Foundation 
his son was murdered um, during a gang-related incident in L.A., and he founded uh, the Tariq Kamisa Foundation out of that incident and forgave the um, murderer of his son and, and uh, is pretty well-known worldwide for touring around um, you know, ceasing the cycles of violence and really allowing for uh, uh, a restorative style of justice to play out, including uh, oftentimes um, atonement that involves a direct relationship between the offender and the victim and repairing quite literally what was harmed in some cases. So, um, Powerful so it, it It sure is. And uh, just wanting to... Um, just let everybody know tonight if you if you have any stories that you'd like to share or questions or comments remember you can press one on your keypad with the few minutes we have left here Chris um, perhaps let's let's just say uh, I'd like to hear a few comments from you about um, what we've touched on tonight regarding you know given that we're in the in the midst of, of such a transformation in in the system um, how do you, what, what buttons does restorative justice uh, push um, for people and why do you think there is resistance to um, what obviously is a much more um, holistic perspective, uh, uh, an all-empowering perspective and practice for, for not only not only for the people involved entirely, the community, the victim, the offender, um, and even the system itself, but also a great savings to um, state and federal budgets because we see less people showing up behind bars. Yeah. You I, I think, so I'll kind of frame it in, because I have here, I didn't really talk about funding, but that's a huge part of running a restorative justice program, and a lot of that is marketing. And so I've realized that when you're competing for your donated dollar within your com community, because that, that is, we can work collaboratively, but you, know, you have to get a message out to people. And that's where we've pushed peace and belonging, because restorative justice, people still are like, huh, what is that? And there's a little bit of self-preservation, I think, that people want to believe that their community is safe. And so when you hear victim, you may subconsciously think, well, what did you do to deserve that? And, and, and I'm not saying that's, you know, the case at all. We know that, but if you hear restorative justice, victim, offender, community, you know, people aren't going to always stand up and go forward to support that. And then it's not that they resist it, but it's, it's a lot easier than to spend the donated dollar maybe, you know, with your food pantry because we know we don't want hungry children or, you know, for domestic violence. We know what that is. And so you hear restorative justice, people don't know what it is. So to gain support, I think it's important to to put out front this peace and belonging, and then the way we do peace and belonging at St. Croix Valley Restorative Justice is restorative justice. So that's kind of my take on some of the, the resistance is still those misunderstanding of what it is. And then I think that we are ingrained from an early age that you get a star for being good and you get your name on the board for being bad, and, and there isn't a lot of... Um, you know, a little kid eats the cupcake and chocolate frosting is on his lip, and you say, did you eat the cupcake? And your kid says, no, I didn't eat the cupcake. Um, because that fear, <laughs> that, you know, setting it up. And so when we have offenders that say, I didn't do it, it's, it's having to have a place of understanding what that's about. And so creating safe communities starts with a social-emotional safety, and that's what we're getting 
we're getting a lot more awareness about that, you know, in our schools and, you know, in in youth development and, you know, you go really far upstream and it's about building empathy and that social emotional mm. aspect for kids and, and recognizing how wired we are to be connecting with each other and, and you know, two people can't stand in front of each other and not communicate. Um, you know, it happens in our elevators. We try to shut it down so much in an elevator, but, you know, I usually break out. I almost want to giggle because I'm <laughs> like <laughs> that emotional climate in there. But So I and think you, we're getting there and we've gotten a long way. And do you think that we're willing to possibly begin to see the larger story perhaps of the offenders as well in um, that they perhaps have been victims? Is that a part of this? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I, t I teach restorative justice view of violence is, you know, not just physical violence, but it's the absence of anything that violates the integrity of another person and that people act violently because of the belief they've been harmed or wronged and they're trying to right the wrong when they act violently. So um, there's a lot more deep-seated, you know, social justice, you know, the pieces of transformative justice really, you know, focuses on what are the, the things that cause this where I think restorative justice is like, here's the incident of, of harm we're going to try and repair. But I think we need to be mindful and pay attention to those larger social constructs or, um, you know, generational traumas that, that have happened that are bigger pieces that people are um, trying to recover from. You know, and I, and I see it happening. I see it happening like in circle training where we're, we're talking about, a, I mean, it wasn't on my agenda, the training, but the training went to a place where we were processing lynching. And to me, that's healing is happening when we're coming, we're stepping forward to have those kinds of dialogues and our, our trainings become so safe, we can share some of those things. So there's a long way to go, but there's also a long road behind us that we've come a long, long way. And, and so that there's much to be celebrated as much as there is work to do. It's always a balance. Mm. Uh, it's just been great to have you with us tonight, Chris. And uh, just in closing, is there anything you'd like to share further about how people can keep in touch with you and your programming? I mean, it sounds to me like people can come visit and take trainings there. Do you have anything virtual, um, any virtual offerings or, or anything else you'd like to share events-wise or otherwise with us tonight about your work? Sure, sure. Um, I do write the blog. I had mentioned that, so you can link to that through our website. Um, we do try to set up when people come visit us for training that you come and actually see a session that you're sitting, you know, we kind of time it out. We had some gals come from New York and they were in on a, you know, I think like five circles in three days and, you know, two days of training in different kinds of circles. So that's really great to come and see it. Um, and then I think in 2013 we were going to actually try to set up some online um, discussions when victim offender dialogue and severe crime cases happen, that those would be we could kind of share and use Skype for that. So look for that in 2013 on our website. Um, and then we always love the media of Twitter and Facebook and, and connecting stories and programs. And so it's, it's all about relationships, so we're here to to build those as well. And just thank you so much for providing the platform that people can listen live, they can listen to the archives, and you've got a really rich background of interviews there, and I'm really honored and appreciate being one of them. Oh, well, thank you so much, Chris. And again, everyone, thank you for being a part of this circle, this virtual council. And I do want to remind you to please visit scvrjp.org. Again, that's scvrjp.org for 
more information about St. Croix Valley Restorative Justice Programs. And Chris, thank you so much again. Um, just want to also please welcome you to join us again next week as we host Patty Latai, who is the Executive Director of Full Circle Restorative Justice. And then the week after that, we'll be talking with Deb Witzel of the Longmont Community Justice Partnership. For more information about all our upcoming guests, and to access the archives, again, go to dopeace.us. And thanks again to everyone. On behalf of the Peace Alliance, I'm your host, Molly Rowan Leach. Have a wonderful rest of your evening. Good night, everyone.